Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Amen. It's good to see you. I invite you to please take your Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There should be uh, a black hardback Bible around you somewhere. And if you don't have a Bible, you don't own one, that's, that's yours. That'd be a gift from us to you this morning. Or you can take your phone or your device and go to esvbible.org and you can find uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 there. Well, we keep going with Solomon on his unair-conditioned tour bus through life under the sun. And he's taken us through his estate. He's shown us his life, what he's accomplished, shown us what is of ultimate worth and what is of real meaning and value and purpose. And now today, that bus keeps rolling, and and he takes us in chapter 9. He's going to take us through our lives under the sun. And he wants us to think about our living room, and he wants us to think about our our dining room table, and he, he wants us to think about our, our bedroom and think about our, our lives and our spouses, and, and he even stops at a funeral home on, on the way. And if you're able, as we do every week, let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of Christ, and we hear from the Holy Spirit through our brother Solomon, beginning in verse 1. But all of this I laid to heart. Examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And one who swears is, is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts where they live, and after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the the grave to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, 
And a great king came against it and besieged it and built great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. But the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray together. Holy Father, would you help us now? Would you please help us by your divine spirit? Would the Holy Spirit of your risen Son meet us now and help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you help us to behold your word? and to behold the glory of your Son with unveiled face, that we may be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And would you, Spirit, take your word that you breathed out through our brother Solomon, and would you rebuke us, reprove us, correct us, exhort us, and train us in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. And would you cut through the thoughts and intentions of our heart this morning, And would this word be a sword of the Spirit that we use to wage war, not against flesh and blood, but against arguments and lofty opinions raised against Christ, even in our own mind this morning? Would you help us if we're engaged in spiritual warfare at levels that we don't even know about, Lord? And may our eyes be fixed on you and your word. And it's by the name of King Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When my daughter, Ivy, she's, she's seven now, and when she was about three, we, when we would put her to bed at night, uh, we would try, you know, most nights to pray and, and sing. And we would sing all kinds of different songs. Two was harder, but when she was three, she was kind of actually more to sing along, and she would pray. And, and we would sing all kinds of great songs, like, Our God is so big. Our God is so big, so strong, and we would all flex, and she would flex her little toothpick arms about being strong, and, and then we would sing, Jesus loves me. Um, and then especially the one great song is, he's got the whole world in his hands. And what's cool about singing with our family is that when you sing, he's got the whole world in his hands, and you go, oh, then the next verse, you put in whoever's name is in the room. So it'd be, he's got, and we would do mama and papa together, because, you know, we're one flesh. He got mama and papa in his hands, and we sing, and then he's got pancake, our dog, in his hands. And then we got to Ivy, and we'd sing, he's got little Ivy in his hands. And every time we would sing it, well, always when we got to little Ivy, she would always do this little dance. She would just, <laughs> she had this little swag dance she would be doing on her, on her little trundle bed. And she'd be dancing. And we, it was so cute. We'd do, people come over, be like, oh, let's sing. He's got the whole world in his hands. Watch, watch Ivy dance. And we do, and we sing the song over and over and over again. And I couldn't help but think about this song as I read this verse this week. Verse 1, what does he say in verse 1? How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. He's got us in his hands. That's not just a cute song to sing with a preschooler. It is wonderfully deep and wonderfully true and something to trust in that he does have the whole world in his hands. And he especially has you, Christian. You are in his hands. And this is comforting and discomforting at the same time. It's an encouragement to know I am in the hand of God, and it is, that's comforting, and it is discomforting to my flesh, to the temptations in my heart and in my mind, and, and the temptations and satanic powers coming together and tempting me, going, but I want to be in control. 
I know it's, I, I want God to hold my salvation in his hand, but I want a little bit of my life in my hand. I want that job. I want this thing. I want this place. I want things to unfold this way. But since this is true, we are in his hands. Your life is never out of control. If you really are, if you really do believe this verse, that you are in the hand of God, your life is never out of control. In the hands of God, your life is never spinning out of control. Rather, it means just you are not in control. So yes, things are not happening the way you would like. Things are not unfolding the way you hoped. That does not mean your life is out of control. It is just a reminder that your life is out of your control. And when we think rightly about God and about us, this should bring us great joy and a great hallelujah. Because listen, I want my life in God's hands. I want him leading me. I want him guiding me through the valley of the shadow of death. I want him laying me down in green pastures. I want him directing and leading my life. I am not foolish enough to think that I know what's best for my life and that I have the ability to carry it all out. I forget to take out the trash. Anyone else forget to take out the trash ever? Okay. That should remind us, yeah, I don't want to be in control of my life. I think I should be in control of where things should go. I know what's best. and I think this should be unfolding this way. We forget to take out the garbage. Even with the spouse saying, tomorrow's trash day. I know, I know, I know. There, there they went. You're running down the street. Hey, hey. Trying to like, you know, I put reminders in my phone. Take out the trash. It's going to be on my program today. Take out the trash. And I'll go. And I even put a time, 10 p.m., take out the trash. Okay. I check it at 4 p.m. I'll do that. No, I forget we are in his hands. It's the fool who wants to run their own life. The fool wants to do their own thing. But listen, Solomon is reminding us every single week that in these vain lives, these fleeting, these vanishing lives under the sun, though we are in the hand of God, as Jesus reminds us in the Gospel of John, that we're in the Father's hand and that we're sealed by the Spirit and he has us too. We have this triune grasp on us. This doesn't mean that tragedies, diseases, and disasters and sufferings won't still fall on us in this life under the sun, and especially the greatest evil under the sun. It's verse 2. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, the him who sacrifices and him who doesn't. Now skip down to verse 3. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to them all. They go to the dead. We all die. It's unavoidable. It happens to every person, every kind of person. Christian atheist, drug dealer, mattress salesman, regular church attender, or a guy who never goes to church and hates people who go to church, to Hitler and, and Winston Churchill. The same thing happens to all of us. We will all at some point be put in a box six feet in the underground. People will say some nice things. They'll talk about us in past tense, and then they'll go out to eat and go home and watch football or baseball or, and have potato salad for a week. And Solomon says, this is evil. Verse 3, this is an evil. Death isn't natural. We should not talk about it that way. Oh, it's a natural thing. Yes, it, we all do it, but that doesn't mean it's natural. The Bible says, no, it is evil. It is unnatural. Death is a ripple effect of sin, not part of God's masterpiece laid out in Genesis 1. Death is evil. This is why Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He knows I'm going to bring him back to life. 
He's going to walk up to him and go, Lazarus, why don't you come out and not be dead anymore? And he does. But he still wept at the evil that faced him. It still broke his heart. Our world is haunted by the effects of sin. Our world is haunted by it. This is why cemeteries are spooky. They were not meant to be here. Our world is haunted by the effects of sin. And this is why when, when we are raised from the dead and we are busted out of these tombs, and cemeteries will be extinct in the new earth. There will be no space for them on the new creation. And death is the biggest goblin on our planet, and it's unavoidable and it's inescapable, but it is not hopeless. Look at verse 4. We all go to the dead in the verse 3, but now verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. So it's not hopeless. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. You could even say a living dog is better than a living cat, but it's not what Solomon's talking about. For a living dog, I mean, this is a, so here's what he's saying. Look, he's saying if you're alive, which is everyone in here, unless there's some kind of weekend at Bernie thing going on here, it's weird. That'd be like weird legalism. Kind of, oh, he's dead. We got to bring him anyways. You know, everyone, we are alive. So this this verse is speaking right to you. You you have hope still. You can still do stuff in your life. You can make changes. You can adjust. The final period on your life has not been written yet. And that final blot of ink on your death certificate has not occurred. This is kind of what he's saying in verse 6. You can still do stuff. Because look at, look at verse 6. He says, this dead person, their love, their hate, their envy, all the, the human emotions, they've perished. They're gone. And forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. you got to remember, under the sun. Solomon's not thinking about eternity. He's not thinking about right now, about what's going to happen afterwards. He's thinking under the sun, this life here on this temporal earth. He says they have no more share. They they can't do anything. Like Prince is not getting a single cent of all the songs that now he's sold. And memory of them is gone. There are probably a lot of people in this room really liked Prince. Some people in the room go, I have no idea who that is. And I, I don't care. He's just gone, and he'll be, he'll be forgotten. And a living dog is better than a dead lion. What a weird, wild turn of phrase from Solomon. But it's so true if you think about it. It's obvious which one's better. If they're both alive, lion's better. Lion's dead, eh, who cares? I'd rather take the dog. What pet do you want? You want a corpse of a lion or you want a dog? <laughs> which one's better? When they're alive, lion's better. Lion's dead, you can get, yeah, you can get it real cheap, but dog is... You want the dog. And in our culture, it doesn't make as much sense, but back in ancient Near Eastern culture, th- these dogs, they, they were not like, you didn't have a family dog. They were seen as scavengers and nasty and, and gross. It was like, like the lowest thing. It was like how we view cats today. It's like, you know, now th- these dogs are, it's all switched now. Cats are fine, mostly. The things with dogs, well, here's what he's saying. He's, he's making that parallel. You're the dog. You're the living dog. What's better? A guy who sells guitars at a pawn shop or a dead prince? Oh, prince is so great. It was. He's gone under the sun. What would you rather have? A dead king or a living hobo? Who's better at protecting your property? A barking mutt or the rotting corpse of a lion? 
So, so he's saying, you're still alive. There's still, there's still hope for you. You can still make changes. It's not over. All of the I wished can be, I, I did them. I wish I loved more. I wish I spent more time with my kids. I wish I served more, cared for my neighbor. I wish I evangelized more. You can do all of these things. And for the Christian, there is a gospel-wakened hope. When he says there is hope, as a believer, this should resonate within us, now bringing old and new together. Yes, we know what this hope is. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, God is in the business of hope, not wishful thinking. This kind of biblical hope is sure, steadfast, concrete. The God of hope, what? May he fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I think this is Solomon's goal too. Paul's a little more positive, but they're both aiming at the same thing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The God of hope wants to fill you and help you and strengthen you this morning by the Holy Spirit so that we can not just have a little bit of hope, not just have a measly bit of hope, but abound in hope. God wants a firework display of hope in your life. Because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. So Paul's saying, look, if Jesus only helps us under the sun, who cares? So this hope isn't just even from birth certificate to death certificate. We have what? Colossians 1.5, we have a hope laid up for you in heaven. You have a hope that goes beyond the sun. It's not just in this life only. It's not just under the sun. And as Paul says in, in the book of Titus, it kind of just goes through this kind of nuclear core of hope throughout the entire book. In chapter 1, he says, and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So even before Genesis 1 was brought into existence, brought out by the mouth of God, there was already a hope promised among the Trinity before the ages began that you would have eternal life in the blood of Jesus Christ. Titus 2, we're what? Waiting. What are we doing under the sun? We are waiting for our blessed hope, which is what? It is a who the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Titus 3, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So when Solomon says, he who is joined with the living has hope, if you're alive in Christ, you have a sure and steadfast hope that eternal life with Jesus beyond the sun and the hope of Jesus returning, of the clouds being rolled back like a scroll at the cry of command, the Lord will descend and we will, raise, we will be raised from the dead and we will reign and rule with him forever on the new earth. We do not have hope just in this life only, but beyond this life. This is our hope. And guys, the world is looking for hope. The world's looking for hope. They're trying to find it in bottles and what they can smoke and what they can inject and in who they can be with, what they can achieve. The world, everyone's looking for hope. And I ran across this product called the Bios Urn. And it's a product that shows how people crave life after death. It's basically you, you a loved one or whatever, you buy this Bios Urn and you take their cremated ashes and you combine it with the urn and their soil in the urn and a seed from whatever tree you want. And you plant it and their whole cell is that now you can be a tree in your new life. 
And from the description on the website, it says this, the bios urn is much more than an urn. Listen, it's a catalyst for life. The bios urn is a fully biodegradable urn designed to convert you into a tree after life. Mainly composed of two parts. The urn contains a seed which will grow in the name of your loved one. Bios urn turns death into a transformation and a return to life through nature. People want life. They want some second life. They, they want an afterlife. And I, they have blogs and blogs and videos. And I was reading these blogs and, and reading the comments on, on some of these blogs. And one commenter said on one of the stories, she said, I have always been scared of death. But visiting this website and seeing the pictures and what I would become in the afterlife brings me peace. Friends, you can have a real afterlife. And not as a tree, but as a real, glorified, resurrected human being. You are made to be a human being. And you're made to be one forever. And if you believe in King Jesus... You too will be raised from the dead, and you will not be some tree. You will be you in your body, but you will be freed from all the effects of sin and all the effects of your body wearing down. There will be no optometrist in the new earth. You will no longer need your glasses. You will no longer need your centrum silver and your joint pain medicine. You will no longer need your insulin. You will no longer need your allergy medicine. You will be a glorified, perfected human being forever. And it's easy for us to hear about the biosurin and go, man, that is so silly. That is so ridiculous. It's so dumb. But maybe things like this exist because the church, we have not given adequate answers for the hope that lies within us. That we have not convinced people that we are excited about the hope of eternal life. And that we only have hope in Christ for this life only. And so people, oh, I guess I'll be a tree. I guess I'll go to the bottle. I guess I'll go to this. When we could show them, you can have hope in Christ. So does your future hope matter to you today? Does it abound for you? Or is it just a small flicker of the hope of eternal life, of the waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you rejoice in it? Are you waiting for him? This is why the book of Revelation, it doesn't end with a bunch of charts and graphs and pictures. It ends with the church saying, come, Lord Jesus. So are you, does your future hope matter to you today? Yeah, the, the evil that is death awaits us all. But what awaits the Christian is the overcoming of death. Because Christ overcame death. When he died on the cross for our sins and then rose again from the dead, and the Bible says that we too will be raised with him in newness of life. Christ triumphed over all the evil and the grave and sin, Satan, and death, and we too will raise with him. So what do we do until then? Verse 7. Go. Eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain and fleeting, steam-like, vapor-vanishing life. So what does Solomon say? Have a great life. Yes, the evil that is death is encroaching upon us, but we will overcome because Christ overcame. But until then, enjoy life. So this is like the third or fourth time Solomon has told us, have fun under the sun. 
And we can amplify it even more. It's not just Solomon telling us. It is God Almighty grabbing you and I by the face and saying, guys, have fun under the sun. Enjoy your life. God's com- this is a command. This is not a suggestion from God. This is a command from Almighty God. Enjoy your life. We know the commands. Don't lie. Don't steal. You know, don't, don't cheat. I mean, we know these commands. This is a command. Enjoy life. Eat your bread with joy. Man, that's easy to do at an Italian restaurant. I got that olive oil and that stuff. Oh, man, you smile for days eating that stuff. And it's, you do that with a turkey sandwich. Eat your bread with joy. Man, this is good. God's commanding us. He's saying, enjoy the good food. Drink the good drink. Party. That's really what verse 8 is. Let your garments always be white. Wear the nice stuff when you got it, when you can. He's like always being this mindset of, I'm here to have a good time in the name of King Jesus. That I know the world's burning and that death is barreling towards us. I'm not scared one bit. I'm not running to a foxhole. We're rejoicing in Christ. Let's fix the hair. Let oil always be on your head. Have a great marriage, verse 9. And what's amazing, this is in the Old Testament too. A lot of people, oh, man, Old Testament God, he's always angry and open up the earth and killing people and fireballs and stuff. Yeah, that happens. It happens in the New Testament too. Doesn't like Revelation's making up for a lot of what's not there in like Matthew to Jude. <laughs> but here he is, Old Testament, there's no, there's no division between God. He's always the same. And here he is saying in the Old Testament, have a blast. We think it's unspiritual to have fun. No, this glorifies God. He's not against joy. He is for us finding joy, the right joy, the good joy in the good things. I mean, look at how God describes it. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. And see, it's with a merry heart. There's a big difference in drinking wine to get a merry heart and drinking it with a merry heart. Enjoy life with your spouse. So why? Why all these things? Look at what he says at the end of verse 7. For God has already approved what you do. This is not in spiritual stuff. This brings delight to God that we would enjoy his creation. 1 Timothy 4 says, everything created by God is good. And to be rejoiced with thanksgiving. Our Christian, as Christians, our joy in our lives, they're not defined by what we do now and by what we do not do, how we fall short, how we sin. In Christ, our lives are now defined by Jesus. Now our entire lives have already been approved, and now we are defined, our lives are ratified by Christ himself. Now we can have a gospel-formed joy of God's creation. And I think this plays into having a childlike faith that the New Testament says. When my kids... When, they are, when Ivy knows today, she's going to be having Bluebell this afternoon. She's going to bust out that dance again. Mm-mm, mm-mm. She's going to be all about it. When they have Chick-fil-A or like one of, one of Ivy's grandmothers sent a, a present in the mail, this little beanie boo, you know what these things are. These weird looking little stuffed animals, big googly eyes. They're freaking me out. But she loves them. They're like $5. She loves these things. She sent one in the mail. She got it open. She like did like a sad moonwalk across like the kitchen, holding it up, going, yeah. She was so excited. You know, that's childlike faith too. Kids know how to enjoy what adults think is mundane. Kids know how to enjoy what we think is nothing. God's inviting us to enjoy his creation. It's not sinful to have a good time. It's not unspiritual. It's not immature. 
it is possible to sin while having a good time. We know that to spill into disobedience or to gluttony or, or, or drunkenness. So, of course, Solomon and nowhere in the Bible would ever advocate that. But it is good and holy and pleasing to God to sit back, get that pretzel bun, fill it with 80-20 chuck, <laughs> clang your glass, let the queso flow like wine, and just <laughs> have a ball. Or, or just on a lazy Saturday, just having a turkey sandwich, kicking back, watching Netflix and relaxing. These are all echoes of Eden. This God's people under God's reign, enjoying God's creation for God's glory. These are echoes of Eden and foreshadows of the new earth to come. When Christians are gathering and enjoying one another in God's creation, this is what eternity will always be like. Like we had friends over last night. We're swimming, we're having dinner, just having a good time, laughing. This is what eternity will be like. We're not going to be floating around on clouds, like doing that stuff forever. It'll be like this without sin in our resurrected bodies, glorifying Him forever. And now we are equipped by the Spirit of the risen Christ to enjoy God's creation in a holy way under the sun. In fact, we are to be rebuked if we're not enjoying life under the sun. We need accountability partners for this verse. We have accountability parts. Hey, don't be looking at pornography. Hey, are you serving your wife? Like we have all these kinds of, are you doing what you, are you reading your Bible? We need accountability for, are you having fun? Are you enjoying your life under the sun? Are you enjoying your vain life? I'm getting elders. You know, like this is kind of the thing. We need this in the local church and, and in marriage. Look at verse nine. Enjoy life with with the wife whom you love all the days of your fleeting, of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, in your toil, which you toil under the sun. So enjoy. I just love that verses like this are in the Bible. They're really all over it. Solomon gives this to us a lot, because he knows what it's like to mess up your marriage. I love verses like this. God, God does not want you to have a mediocre marriage. God says, enjoy life with your wife. You, ladies, enjoy life with your husband. So that God is inviting us to say, look at marriage, look at it as a centrifuge for joy, not as for strife and conflict and battles and cold wars, but a coming together to enjoy one another in all of life, in every area of life. Notice it's not just enjoy life in the bedroom. It's enjoy all of it. Not just enjoy the bedroom, not just enjoy life. Enjoy Cleaning out the garage is what we did yesterday. My wife killed it. She just went nuts. She cleaned the whole garage. It's amazing. We had, we had fun. I don't know how, other than by the Holy Spirit. I loved cleaning the garage with my wife. Enjoy all of life. This is how God has designed it. And it's with. This one flesh. You, you can't really enjoy life without the one fleshness of your, if you're married, with your, without your spouse. So, God says, go all out, enjoy it, have a ball. If your wife is more of a let's get dressed, let's go out, let's dance, you know, et cetera, do it. If she's more sweatpants and Netflix, praise the Lord. <laughs> and ladies, if your man is more steakhouse and, and, you know, sports, go red meat. If he's more movies and popcorn, go all out, get the big tub, get the refill, you know, go it is a compromise, a coming together, because life, as Psalm would say, life is too vain, meaning it's too short. It's too fleeting. It's too vanishing to risk not having a blast in your marriage, loving and serving each other and enjoying one another. 
I like hanging out with my buddies. It's so much fun. But nothing compares to life with my wife. So what Psalm is saying, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. God cares about your marriage. These are three things he just went over. God cares about your joy, he cares about your marriage, and he cares about your life. Do you? I know, brothers, we care about our jobs, and we should. We care about discipling and disciplining our children, which we should. But do you care about your marriage? Miserable marriages are one of the saddest things I've ever seen. They're just they're painful and sad to see. I, miser- it's like we need a Cheryl Crow commercial for miserable marriages. And if you're there, it's not joyful. It's a lot of cold shoulders and snide comments and pride. And, and you're sitting here going, oh, gosh, I, I, I think it's, we're too, we've gone too far. I mean, it's just, no. The living take it to heart. Because if you're alive, you have hope. So things can change. And the way change in our life always occurs. The way out is always down through repentance. Always through repentance. Have the conversation. What I said to you was sinful. Please forgive me. How I've been acting towards you has been sinful and dishonoring to you and to the Lord. Please forgive me. Lay down your life. Kill your sin. Fight for joy. And maybe what we need is we need to redefine how we find enjoyment. If you still find more enjoyment than getting what you want, and that what your spouse wants, and what he or she finds enjoyment in, you'll just make it harder on yourself. But biblical discovery of joy is finding enjoyment in the joy of your spouse, finding joy in where they find joy, finding joy in their joy. Find enjoyment with your spouse. Life is too fleeting to wait. And while Solomon is heaping all these wonderful things on us, party, have the burgers, let the queso go, have fun in your marriage. He also says, but let's remember, we can't be too hedonistic. Verse 10, we got stuff to do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which means the grave, to where you are going. So Solomon says, look, whatever you do for work, do it with all your might. Don't, don't mail it in. Don't do enough to get by. Don't party too much to where you're not working as you, know, as you should be. You won't be able to work in the grave, so do it now. This too brings glory to God. So if you're in sales or you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a single parent, give it all you got and be content with it. If you're a student, this is a great verse for you. Middle school, high school, college student, whatever. Remember this verse in your studies. Give it your best. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. If you're single, be the hardest working, church-serving, Jesus-loving, one-anothering person on the planet. And notice that Solomon says, whatever, whatever your hand finds to do, not if you like it or not, do it with all your might. Not just when you get your dream job, do it with all your might. No, whatever. If you're bagging groceries, doing paperwork, data entry, sales, fast food, jobs that you think are beneath you, the Bible says no. Do it with all of your might. Because this shows you are submitting to God's plan and not yours. That you are trusting what God has for you, not what you want for you. And it's preparing you for what's to come. This is wisdom's laboratory. Because you will learn, and you are learning, that everything will not go as you expected. But wisdom is worth it. Wisdom actually helps. As with that last section we read from verse 13 to the very end, Solomon says, I saw this city. It was a great city. But, you know, it was really kind of small. Lots of good stuff going on. And the city gets besieged. Gets taken over by these other kings. 
But there was one guy in the city, a poor wise man. He delivered the city by his wisdom, and no one remembered the man. No one cared about him. Solomon says, look, you live wisely, not to become employee of the month, not to become recognized, not to have people go, man, he's like the best guy here, but because that's what you do for the glory of God. You don't work as unto men, but to God. And life's not a mathematic equation. Things don't always add up the way they should, the way we think they should. Look at verse 11. He says, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. We know this, the old story, tortoise in the hare. Sometimes the tortoise wins. Nor the battle to the strong. Sometimes David wins. Goliath loses. Nor bread to the wise. Sometimes Aladdin doesn't get the bread, or does, everyone, if he's wise or not. Nor riches to the intelligent. Nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. So he's saying, look, sometimes things just happen. The word chance doesn't mean luck here. The word chance means, in Hebrew, basically events occurring outside of your control. Events happening that you had, the way we would say, man, I had no chance. I, I had no, like, ability to do anything about that. He's saying time and chance is what brings the tortoise and the hare. Time and chance is what brings Steph Curry messing up his MCL, playing against the Rockets. When Demontis Money Unit slips and falls and his sweat gets all over the court, and then a half a second later, Steph is just running by there, it slips, does a splits, hurts his knee. No, no chance. Just happens. Look how he describes it at the end of verse 12. Man doesn't know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net. Like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time. It just happens. It's outside of your control. Sometimes athletes get hurt and businesses fail. People who deserve the job, deserve the promotion, deserve the contract, they did all the good work, doesn't happen. The other person got it. Right place, right time. Time and chance, the way Solomon uses that, just happens. Sometimes life descends and events just crash on us and we get like fish caught in a net and there's just nothing we can do. But remember verse 1. He's got little you in his hands. So enjoy and trust. He's got the whole world in his hands. And your eternity is safe in his hands beyond the sun. You're in his hands. Let's pray together.